Hi, this is Paul Good, coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee, and you are listening to Joe Taylor on Face Edge. I just did not believe that God loved me. I believed that God hung up on me, and I used to tell people, you know, yeah, I would, I would be more at peace if I were an atheist than a Christian trying to believe in a God that I didn't think gave a rip. Wow, that is some heavy stuff. Heavy, heavy stuff. I know where you're coming from, though, David. I know where you're coming from. Thank you to singer, songwriter, and author Paul Good for the introduction. Paul was our guest on the last episode of On Faith's Edge. He is releasing two new projects, his album Andrea and his book Rooster Call, both fantastic projects geared towards guys who want to be godly men. Also on that show, rocker John Schlitz stopped by to talk about his newly formed band with Whitehearts Billy Smiley called Union of Sinners and Saints. And from the sound of it, this thing absolutely rocks out. You can hear both Paul Good and John Schlitt at onfaithsedge.com slash 65. Again, that's onfaithsedge.com slash 65. Well, hello. Welcome to the 66th episode of On Faith's Edge. My name is Joe Taylor, recovering atheist and your servant in Jesus Christ. This is your place to hear conversations about God and living a life of faith in Jesus Christ. First up on today's show, author and worship leader David Hampton comes in and has a frank conversation about his life as a worship leader, tending to his chronically ill wife and dealing with their teenage daughter, all ultimately leading to David's in, David in isolation and alcoholism. You know the story doesn't end there, though. Wait until you hear how he shook up his faith and allowed God to heal his life. He has a new book called Our Authentic Selves, Reflections on What We Believe and What We Wish We Believed. Then, Alanka Deaton, fresh off her appearance on The Steve Harvey Show, returns to discuss her new book, Keeping Secrets, where she tells her story of survival as she was kept in sexual slavery as a teenager by her manager of all people. Alanka's a really special woman, and her story is incredible. David Hampton is an award-winning singer, songwriter, and musician. The songs and hymns he has published and recorded led him to traveling with a host of well-known artists. The twist of his life as he dealt with his wife's suffering with a progressive and eventually debilitating disease and his own subsequent spiral into alcoholism began derailing what at first seemed like a storybook life. With heartfelt candor, David recounts his days as a professional Christian trying to spin the plates of a very public ministry life and a serious addiction to alcohol. David is an amazing example of how through pain, struggle, and heartbreak, God reveals deep wisdom and frankly, in David's case, a twisted sense of humor. You and I share a mutual friend, David, none other than Alanka Deaton. Uh, she was recently on the Steve Harvey show and uh, come to find out you and you and uh, you and Alanka are good friends as well. We are. She's absolutely one of my favorite people in the world. Um, and I'm fortunate to have her uh, in my church and and singing and sharing her talents and her story and her encouragement with a lot of people every week. Interestingly sure. enough, we're going to catch up with Alanka uh, uh, shortly after you and I talk, and uh, we'll get a little bit of update. I'm, I uh, I caught up with Alanka and Bill Deaton at the National Religious Broadcasters Conference. So uh, immediately after this uh, this conversation, we're going to catch up with Alanka and hear what she's up to. So uh, stay uh, stay around for that as well. Great. Yes, I'd love David, let's talk about uh, your devotional. And I'll, I'll be very honest with you. I'm not, I'm not a big devotional fan. I, it just... I find myself, I find it difficult to get into that daily habit of, of staying into a devotional and trying to connect the dots, how the author's trying to connect the dots. And it's, it's, I've just never been much for, much for devotionals. There's one or two that I like out there, but uh, 
never been much for devotionals, but after hearing your story, I really had to hear about your, uh, your devotional called Our Authentic Selves, Reflections on What We Believe and What We Wish We Believed. But I don't think we can talk about this book without hearing your story, David. You spent almost 20 years as a, you've spent the past 20 years, almost 20 years as a worship minister, but your story really begins with your wife's diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. It does. Yeah. And probably even, you know, more so before that is if I really got into therapy. (laughs) 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 You see, uh, but the the non-therapy version is, yeah, definitely that my my spiral, I will say that for sure. And my faith crisis and everything that really went with it started when she was diagnosed uh, with uh, MS back in, um, around, it was around 1994, 95. And, uh, we thought that she, um, was going to have a, what we would call a relapsing remitting form of MS, which is probably about 80% of the people with MS have that. It kind of flares up, it comes and goes. And, and nowadays there are a lot of drugs, interferon drugs that people can take and, and it really helps manage that. But she ended up, um, long, long story short, ended up in a very, very small percentage of people that uh, that get this very chronic progressive MS that takes her mobility. And she spent the last seven years of her life in a hospital bed in our home. And we took care of her here at home uh, until she passed away in May of uh, 2013. And uh, so we have um, had some uh, some major ups and downs in the process of her uh, her illness. And uh, the, the thing that was kind of ironic was I, you know, like you said, I I came to Nashville as a songwriter. I had I've had two songwriting deals uh, in the time I've been in Nashville, and I've had um, uh, the opportunity to travel to you know, all over the United States and probably 15 countries with Christian artists as a, as a musician. And then, uh, when Trisha got sick, I, um, ended up taking this full-time position at my church, Christ Community Church in Franklin and, uh, where Scotty Smith was a senior founding pastor at the time. And, um, and that worked out really well, but I, I found that as Trisha got sicker, uh, I was getting sicker. And um, caregiving and being a piano player who was trying to pose as a nurse and uh, having to learn to do a lot of things that I had never, ever expected to have to know how to do um, was beginning to take its toll on me emotionally. And I found myself becoming very, very isolated and alienated. And all of the things that I thought I knew as a Christian, suddenly we're really called into question. You know, I, I, I mean, I realized really early on that, that adversity didn't necessarily, um, didn't necessarily change what I believed. It just revealed it. And, um, I realized that, um, I had some big questions for God that I didn't know were there. And, uh, so my problem was that I, that I drank. And as a Presbyterian, you know, we don't hide that. We're not, you know, we're not hiding from each other in the liquor stores. And right. so, um, we, uh, we don't have a problem with that. What I had the problem with was 
my friends knowing how much I drank. Baptists hire the Presbyterians to get this party started. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's not a. It's really not a party till the Presbyterians show up, and then it's really not a party till the Episcopalians take it to the next level. You know. So. <laughs> so yeah, between a lot of us, we can have we can have quite a time. That's fine. But, um, yeah, I just didn't. Um, I didn't think that I was uh, abusing alcohol. I just felt like I needed it to take the edge off. You know. Um, and I would, I would tell myself, you know, I would give myself all these excuses about, you know, I'm becoming kind of a single parent to our one daughter that we had. Um, I, I was the one that ended up, you know, having to pick her up from school and take her to things and go to things because Trisha could no longer drive or she could no longer get out or what different things were happening. And, you know, I, I realized that, um, I just felt a lot better about everything when I drank. Drinking was kind of a spiritual experience for me, um, which sounds really kind of weird. But, um, you know, God and I had some of our best talks when I drank. It's just that I don't remember very many of them. And um, <laughs> so <laughs> I had these um, epiphanies, you know, but they just, <laughs> they just didn't last me very long. And uh, by morning, I couldn't remember what they were. But... Um, but I knew that I, I knew that I had to have some kind of barrier between me and what I was seeing happen in my family. And, um, by the time, you know, I mean, I was learning, you know, to, uh, give shots and having to catheterize Trisha four times a day and, um, eventually having to, uh, she had to have a colostomy and a urostomy because she lost those functions. And so I learned how to care for those types of things. I had to be home certain times of day to turn her so she didn't get bed sores. And, um, and our insurance covered a nurse visit once a week uh, to check on her and a nurse test to bathe her twice a week. And everything else that happened was pretty much up to us. And so, um, and so I, was, I was getting very isolated and I was spiraling and I was uh, drinking more than I was telling anyone. And then I was drinking to the point where I didn't remember things. And then I was, you know, drinking to the point where um, I was doing embarrassing things. And, um, and it got bad. It got really bad. And um, I knew I needed help. I knew that my job was probably in jeopardy if I asked for help. Um, so the only thing I knew to do was just try to manage it better by myself. How was your, you, you said your job would be in jeopardy and you're a worship mm-hmm. minister at the time, right? Still are. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how do you, how did you feel your job was at jeopardy if you asked for help? Well, because at the time I felt like, and it turned out not to be true and, um, which is, you know, a great, a great, uh, credit to my church, but at the time, I had sort of convinced myself that I was um, this persona. You know, one thing that goes with addiction is grandiosity. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, we just really, we love to inflate ourselves and because uh, it's all about ourselves. And I thought that if anyone knew that I wasn't perfectly handling all of this or that um, there were these, these gaps in my reality, um, I thought they'd just be, 
them with me. I figured that, you know, I wasn't worth, um, uh, keeping, you know, I didn't think that God, um, would, uh, be honored in my brokenness. And that I think is definitely a lie that, that we buy into as people in any kind of, um, you know, situation where we find ourselves, not just addiction, but, you know, we feel like that somehow we're, we're letting God down. Cause I think somewhere in the church, we give us, we give one another the message that we're God's PR team or something. And, mm. uh, you know, his reputation depends on how well we handle things. And, um, so I thought that I would be canned pretty much. And, um, so I just didn't tell anybody and, uh, um, and that turned out to be a really bad idea, but, but that's what I believed in the moment. Yeah. Not only that, you were raising a daughter at the time as well. You were going through all of this right. and, and part of the, part of the struggle is not only dealing with your, with your wife's illness and, and being her primary caregiver, but you're also the primary caregiver to your daughter. How did, how did that relationship, uh, how was that, how was that relationship affected? Well, um, as you can imagine, uh, Lauren, my daughter, had two sick parents. One she thought couldn't help it and one she thought could. And she was equally angry with both of us um, for different reasons, partly because she was when I really was when my drinking was really hitting its you know peak. She was a preteen uh, girl, which. Um, preteen girls and dads aren't always, you know, the most, <laughs> the most docile relationship anyway. And then you throw a little alcoholism and chronic illness in on that. And you've got, you know, an angry kid and a parent in denial and a parent who can't do for themselves, who sees it all happening on the periphery. And it was, it was a circus. Um, you know, she was angry with me for a long time and rightly so. And, um, and it took her about three years into my recovery to really believe me, you know, that I was, that I was really serious about sobriety. Um, because she was, you know, she had seen, she had seen me quit about, you know, a hundred times and I always went back and relapsed. And so when I finally got into, uh, real recovery, um, it took her a while to buy it, you know, uh, cause by then she was about 15. And she was like, you know, uh, I, yeah, I've heard it, seen it. We'll, we'll wait and see. And, and thankfully, I mean, we have a beautiful relationship now and, uh, you know, we're, we're friends as well as, um, you know, parent daughter thing. Um, and she's 26 now. So, you know, it's, we've, and I've been sober for 10 years by God's grace, but, mm. um, yeah, it, it affected us terribly for a while because, you know, she acted out in some of her own ways and, um, she had some, and we've, you know, we've, between all of us, we've probably bought beach property for counselors. I mean, we've had, <laughs> we've all, <laughs> a lot of, B, a lot of BMWs all, paid for out there, aren't you? That's right. Exactly. Yeah. We were, we have made those payments for people for a while. <laughs> You know, it's your, your, your spirit. I do. I want to stop you about this. Uh, it was very, obviously very painful going through mm-hmm. it, but your spirit about this is, is really joyous at this point. It's, uh, it's remarkable, David. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that it's, you know, I think that God has done some miraculous things 
in me and in and in the people around me. And um, you know, the, the biggest the biggest relief was when I could finally be honest about it. And I kind of I, I've always had kind of a little bit of a twisted sense of humor, and um, and my wife and I, you know, certainly at things that um, other people would just shake their head and go, you know, you're, you're, you're both sick and wrong. But, um, you know, you have to see um, the irony in a lot of this because, I mean, I mean, come on. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm getting up every week, in a in a mega church situation where there were at the time were, you know, a lot of people that, you know, that the public would know who were, in my congregation and I'm either hungover or, or half there, uh, in the process of it. And I'm at home, you know, doing things that I don't even, you know, I, I didn't even want to want to tell people how, you know, crazy they were with, uh, caring for Trisha and, and in my own behavior. And, and my daughter was so angry with me. And yet, you know, I felt like we all, we're, you know, supposed to be the Hallmark family. And, and it was just kind of surreal and bizarre. It was kind of like, you know, one of these dark HBO specials or something. I mean, we were just this sick little family. And, um, and I finally, you know, I don't know if you know, Nate Larkin, he wrote a book, um, a few years ago called Samson and the Pirate Monks. And it's a Thomas Nelson book. And, he talks about his battle with sexual addiction, which he went through as a pastor. He he was pastoring at the time. And he and I became good friends, and he shared a lot of his story with me. And so I called Nate one day and had coffee with him. And um, I told him, I said, I think, I think I might have a drinking problem. And he said, well, you know, what are you, what are you doing? And I said, well, you know, I keep running the weed spreader in the garage and I hide it around the house and I drink, um, you know, just, I start drinking about five o'clock and I, I go till I go to sleep and, uh, I don't remember anything. And he said, well, how long have you been doing that? And I said, about five years. I said, do you think I have a problem? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he just kind of laughed at me because, you know, that's, because I always told people I was a social drinker, but, you know, the five o'clock news had become a social occasion. So that was kind of the, the way I was looking at it. But, um, yeah, and Nate took me, he said, have you ever been to an AA meeting? And I said, well, why would I want to do that? You know, I'm not an alcoholic. I just kind of drink like one. And he, um, he said, well, you know, he said, you need to, you need to come with me to a meeting. And so he took me to my first AA meeting and then he took me to my second AA meeting and, and he took me to these meetings. And, you know, I just thought this was the worst thing in the world. I, you know, I would rather have my picture taken coming out of a strip club than to be seen coming out of AA because I just thought it was the absolute end of the road. You know, I thought, you know, this is, it's come to this. I mean, how bad can it get? And of course, in the reality is, is everybody in the programs are just people, you know, uh, you have a soccer mom sitting next to a trial attorney, sitting next to a nurse, sitting next to somebody who spent the night behind a dumpster, you know, and we're all alcohol kind of levels the playing field, you know? So, uh, we're all there. We're all there to get help. And, and it was through that program and that recovery and sponsorship. And then I, and then I got into a, 
recovery uh, therapist uh, who specializes in addiction um, uh, therapy. And, um, and yeah, I just, uh, I just began to see things about myself and lies I was believing and lies I was telling myself and things I was using to justify my drinking. Uh, my, you know, had this huge victim complex and, um, and, but you know, as the bottom line, um, I didn't believe God loved me. I just didn't, I just did not believe that God loved me. I believed that God hung up on me. And I used to tell people, you know, yeah, I would, I would be more at peace if I were an atheist than a Christian trying to believe in a God that I didn't think gave a rip. Mm. And, um, and that's who I was. That's what I thought. But I had this persona and this job and this, um, responsibility at home that I resented bitterly, um, and couldn't say that because I thought, well, that's not a very, you know, uh, Christ-like attitude. How do you, you know, how do you resent this person that can't help what's happened to them? You know, and yet your life revolves around making sure they have what they need and, uh, the care they need and, you know, the broken bones and the falling and the extended care facilities and, um, all the things that happened to her and, uh, in the process of everything. And, and, uh, so I just thought God had hung up on me and I thought, well, you know, the only thing I can do is, um, is drink at it. And if I can't drink at it, then I'm going to have to come to some kind of, <laughs> some kind of peace in this, but I don't know how to get it. And, uh, uh I, I found that what I ended up doing and the reason I called my first book was, uh, you know, our, our authentic selves and reflections on what we believe and what we wish we believed was because a lot of my Christian life was really on stuff that I just wish I had believed, but I don't think I really owned. Um, and I think a lot of us do that. A lot of us are trying to live out of things that we wish we believed but when push comes to shove. Um, it reveals that maybe we do and maybe we don't. Which is okay, you know. It really is okay to have the doubts and the, and the questions and the and the um, confounding uh, anger that uh, comes with all of that. The title is just intriguing: reflections on what we believe and what we wish we believed. What were some of those things for you, David, that you believed and what you wished you believed? Well, I think one of the big main things was um, that I wish I had believed God loved me, but I didn't. And I felt like, um, you know, if I, I felt like if I believed that God loved me, if I believed that um, somehow that he was really there for me, I would have handled it better. And I, you know, I mean, I don't know that that I, um, would have been any better. <laughs> Maybe I would have, but I, I'll tell you how I came to that. I went up to a monastery cause I didn't trust the Presbyterians anymore. And when I first got sober, <laughs> I just, I decided that, you know, I couldn't trust mainline, um, Christian evangelicals. And, uh, so I, I decided I would go to this monastery that a friend of mine had gone to. And, um, and I realized what I was going to have to do was just rebuild my faith from the ground up. I was, I was raised Southern Baptist and, you know, I'd come to faith when I was nine years old. I put my faith in Jesus and 
I had my, you know, passport stamped and I was good to go. And so from there, I thought, you know, the best thing to do was serve God with my music and, uh, which I wanted to do and love to do and love seeing people affected by it. But, um, I kind of had this one, I, I kind of had this, uh, this, <laughs> this faith that for a long time was like, you know, um, get saved and be good and, and don't mess up. And, um, and I tried to live out of that for a long time. How and, is it, that, how is it that we do that to ourselves, David? You know, it, the, the foundation of our faith and, and what brought us to, to our faith was grace. But right. once we once we accept that grace, we we want none of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like um, you know, I have this I have this idea that um, we're trying to you know someone's offering to pay for our dinner and and we're like oh no 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 I'll I'll get it I'll get it you know and they're like no you're you know it's covered don't don't worry and you're like no 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 I I've got to get it. And I think somewhere in our in our brokenness and our fallen nature or whatever it is, we have this idea that that somehow we could do something to still make it um, our own, so that we feel like we did something. Um, and the idea that that Christ would um, accept us just completely as we are in all the brokenness and continue to love us in all the brokenness is so it's such an unhuman trait that I think we just can't grasp it. And I think we just keep trying to, you know, take the reins back. I, 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 I that's what I think about it. Um, because I think, you know, it's like, Oh no, wait, you know, but, but you know, God's supposed to, you know, God loves me more when I, when I perform and when I do well, because I feel him that way. I don't feel him when I'm in a dumpster gathering up my liquor bottles and going back home to drink again, you know, um, I, that's shameful. And, you know, God must hate that. And, uh, and the truth is, you know, I, when I went to this monastery, the monk that was my spiritual guide, you know, just flat out asked me, he said, do you believe God loves you? And I said, um, no, no, I don't. This doesn't feel like love. I would never do this to my daughter and call it love. I, I wouldn't do it. And um, so, no, I don't, I don't think God loves me. What um, is this, David? I think, when you say I would never do this, when you say I would never do this to my daughter, what, what is this that you felt God was doing uh, to you? Never, yeah, I would never put her in a position where... Um, she had to do the things that I did and see the things that I did that went with my wife's illness, um, physically, emotionally. I certainly wouldn't put her in that bed and let her suffer and call it part of my divine, uh, providence or my, you know, um, this is a way that God is going to grow me and, uh, all of that. I would have just said, no, no, thanks. Um, you're going to have to find another way to win the world. Um, cause I'm not, I'm not going to do that to Lauren. I love her too much, you know? And, um, yeah, that's, uh, you know, those kind of things. And, and to give me a nature that, you know, I, I was always angry that I couldn't drink like other people. 
you know, and in fact, I only really first, <laughs> I only really first started going to AA to learn how to drink like other people. I didn't really go to quit. <laughs> I just wanted to, <laughs> I just wanted to drink like other people. And, um, <laughs> it took a little while to, you know, convince me that my chemistry might be working against me. Um, but, uh, and, and, you know, and the whole, I mean, you know, the whole concept of sin, uh, thrown in on top of that and, and that, you know, there's blatant rebellion, but, but in addiction, you know, you get to a point where, you know, something else is driving the bus and something else is, um, making the decisions once it's introduced. I was fine as long as I didn't drink. It's just that when I drank, I didn't have an off switch and alcohol was driving the bus. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't give my daughter that nature. You know, I wouldn't give her that um, predisposition. And I know people can argue, you know, uh, predispositions and all of that. But um, but that that was kind of what I was talking about. And and the monk just basically said, do you, do you believe Jesus is weeping with you in this? Not standing back watching how you're going to do and, and you know, hand you a report card at the end of the day. But do you really believe that Jesus is weeping with you in this and that he knows this much better than you do. And um, he said, if you don't know the the weeping Savior, then you don't know the, the Jesus of the Bible. And he said, I'm not sure what Jesus you, you bought into, but um, the Jesus that weeps with you in this is the Jesus that wants to know you in this and wants to give you permission to be known in this. And that, for whatever reason, as a kid that had grown up in church all my life and had Christian parents and, you know, everybody around me had done it right. I wasn't, the, I wasn't a casualty of a, a bad system or a, you know, a abusive family or anything. Everybody around me had done it by the book. And, um, and yet I was so messed up on that ideology. Um, so it just tells me how much in our own churches, um, you know, we have to be really careful about what we're communicating to people um, because everybody's going to sit there and try to take that grace, like you said, and figure out a way to twist it into some human accomplishment and, uh, or believe the lie that God just can't handle the truth. And it wasn't until I kind of had that pivotal moment that things began to really and my perspective began to change on it. I thought, well, okay, if I can be honest with him, I'll, I'll try being honest with a few people. And then, and then I found that when I was honest with a few people, I had people calling me and going, me too, and, and here's what's going on in my life. And then when I began to speak about this and, and go out and, and, you know, talk to like a men's retreat or a recovery conference or something, um, then my email really lit up. And what I've discovered is, is that, um, it's not just addiction, it's, it's whatever, but our stories are so buried in the church. It seems that, um, it, if people could just come and say me too in a safe place and have people around them who have been there and they go, you know what? There is, this isn't forever. Uh, tomorrow's going to look a little better. Um, this is going to take time and it's going to be hard. Um, God is probably not going to zap you sober. Um, so the miracle cure is probably not the thing to be praying for. 
um, I pray for courage, peace, and wisdom, because I think those are three things that God promises me, and the rest is gravy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that when we get to those places where we're so desperate, I, I always say that, that worship happens when gratitude and desperation intersect, because um, we we have to have gratitude in in our Christian life, um, in our daily life, but especially in our recovery life. And desperation is what got us here. And we have to be desperate just to know the power of, of God's goodness to us. And when those two things intersect, then you're the leper, the one who comes back and worships. Um, because gratitude and desperation intersected, and there was a beautiful moment there. Um, but without either of those things, it's it's a pretty one sided, um, it's a pretty one sided ride. So when we go when we go pick up our authentic selves, uh, David, what uh, as a devotional, what can the reader expect? Well, yeah, for one thing, <laughs> I called it, you know, I called it a reflections journal because I figured if I called it a devotional, you know, it would be like putting people repellent all over it because nobody <laughs> <People> like <laughs> me, nobody wants to buy a devotional. Right. Yeah. Like you said, you know, it was like, yeah, I really would rather not, not read those, but I, I divided it up <laughs> into 40 days, um, you know, and I asked some questions at the end and each, each passage is uh, only about 500 words. But there, uh, some are anecdotal. Some are my perspectives on uh, things that I have uh, come to believe along the way. That the way God has shaped me and reshaped me. Um, but it's it's a it's a book that I want I want to make people think about what they what they think they think um, because I think that we are such a Christianity has become such an answer driven paradigm that we've lost a lot of the mystery and we've lost a lot of the ability to say, um, how, how can this be? How can God be in this? This is so, this is so hard and so dark. Um, where is God? And, and we begin that journey by asking that question. And, um, I want people, it's not, it's not as depressing a book as it sounds like it is actually. Um, it's actually full of hope and full of, um, uh, experiences that I've had and that friends of mine have had, um, where we come to the end of ourselves, but it, you know, it's one of those great things where you come to the end of yourself and you realize that the door locked behind you and you're never going to get to go back and be that person again. It's kind of like, um, a marriage that survives something really devastating. And, um, you know, we pray for healing in that marriage, but the reality is, is these two people are never going to be the same people again. So they have to reinvent who they are, like God reinvent who they are going to be in the future if they're going to stay together, because those two people left the building when whatever happened, happened. Um, you don't get to hang on to the old you in, um, a new circumstance very often, um, because the old you will take you back to a, to an old place because they have old habits and old beliefs that got you there in the first place. So the door locks behind you when you start this journey and it's scary, but it's hopeful and it's actually positive and you can look at it, um, with the, the journey of faith in Christ, you can look at it with a certain amount of, um, 
humor, I think. I always tell people that I wanted Jesus to show up on a white horse and he showed up in an 87 Bronco with bad suspension and <laughs> asked me to get in. And, you know, he's a terrible driver and he wears a flannel shirt and he doesn't watch the road. And um, yet I'm supposed to trust him. And I do. And I've learned that the alternative is, um, you know, the white horse on the wide open road, Jesus, uh, if I had had, if God had struck me sober, I would have never learned the things that God has taught me about faith, him, um, what it means to be a believer and the permission I can give myself and other people and what it means to be a safe person for other people. I would have never had that experience. I would have woken up one day and I would have said, I'm healed. I think I'll have a drink to celebrate. It would have been a whole new book. Yeah, yeah, and he didn't heal my life in the sense that we all had prayed. You know, we wanted, we kept wanting EMS to go away, and it didn't. It got worse. And when I got sober, she got sicker, and that didn't seem fair. And um, but he did heal her in heaven, and I have that hope and that belief. And um, and I believe that that miracle, um, that that miracle requires a lot of of thinking and a lot of um, redefining, you know, because when she died, I had a blank canvas. I didn't have anything to, uh, uh, define myself by anymore as far as being her caregiver or, um, you know, being needed at home at certain times and all those kinds of things. And so, uh, after her miracle and after my miracle, uh, which I believe sobriety is a miracle. Um, I learned that, that, there was going to be a whole new me emerging and that was, that was frightening and it produced a lot of anxiety um, at first because um, the old me just wasn't going to, just wasn't going to be able to make the trip. And I wasn't sure who the new me was going to turn out to be. And uh, so I guess uh, getting back to your question about the book about uh, authentic selves, I, I would tell the reader to trust the process and trust God in it and, um, and realize that you may, you may come across some things that cause you to think about yourself and your faith, um, in a, in very honest terms and maybe a little more, a little more differently than you had in the past. Um, the door may lock behind you, but it's worth the journey forward. Um, to see what God really does have for us when we take our blinders off and, um, you know, get out from under some of the anesthesia. So the, the so the journal, not the devotional, because we know how we feel about the devotions. <laughs> so the journal is called right. Our Authentic Selves, Reflections on What We Believe and What We Wish We Believed. And it sounds absolutely fantastic, David. It really sounds okay. fantastic. What's up next for you? I uh, am working on another book. Uh, with a group uh, called Morgan James out in New York. And it's a book that is called After the Miracle. And it's very much like what I mentioned earlier. Um, what happens when the man on the mat um, takes up his bed and walks? Um, you know, in the scripture, we don't know. But in life, we know that he rolls up that bed and he walks away and suddenly he is faced with the reality that he's going to have to have a vocation. He's got relationships of people that he's trained to treat in a certain way that 
he's not going to need in the same way anymore. And if they're codependent people, they're not going to be needed and they need to be needed. And that is going to bring some tension. Um, I'm told that more divorces happen after recovery than in active addiction because everybody loses their role. Mm. Um, the, the person, uh, the spouse of the addict uh, doesn't know how to interact with the new sober person that has opinions and feelings and ideas and wants to take some control of their lives. And they've been taking care of this person. And um, after the miracle is when we really face who we are and um, that God is going to teach us a whole lot more um, from here uh, and that there's going to be a lot of change. There's going to have to be a, a change in thinking, a new way of being, a new way of believing because your old version um, may have kept you sick, you know? And uh, so it's going to be an interesting, <laughs> it's going to be an interesting thing as I'm delving into it to, um, explore those stories and say, you know, um, am, am I, am I going to that place where gratitude and desperation meet or am I, am I just, you know, cause for a lot of us, you know, life was easier on the mat. It just was, you know, at least it was predictable, you know, it wasn't ideal, but it was predictable. And, um, and the same way with our, our brokenness and our addictions and the things that we fight and constantly do battle with within ourselves. We hated it and we were miserable in it, but it was at least some somewhat comfortable in the addiction and the, in the predictability, you know, and, and even in illness, you know, I've known many, many people with chronic illness that once they get past that cancer free part, they realize that cancer had become their identity. Right. And, um, you know, so after the miracle is going to be about our identity after we, you know, get what we pray for. And, um, it's almost, it almost seems like it's a, it's a book. You didn't know you need it until you needed it because nobody, (laughs) nobody thinks about, everybody wants to get to the moment. Everybody wants to get to that, to that moment of recovery or that moment of curing or, or, uh, whatever, whatever it might be. But, but man, what do you do after you said that you came to, uh, believe in Jesus Christ at nine years old as a, as a child. Um, right. uh, did you have an adult moment where you said, yeah, I, I know I did this when I was nine, but yeah, I, I really believe this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that was all part of, um, it was actually part of my uh, experience. I think I think it was a gradual awakening to that, but um, my experience at the monastery uh, with mm. the monks was the beginning of that because, um, I, you know, I came to that place where I thought, you know, I either believe it or I don't. And this has nothing to do in, in my mind with um, whether I'm going to heaven or going to hell. Um, you know, at nine years old, um, in my tradition, that was, you know, I, I didn't want to get gored by a bull on the way home from Sunday night church and end up in hell, you know, and that was kind of it. And so it was pretty cut and dry. Where did you grow up that you have, you would have been worried about being gored by a bull on the way home? (laughs) I grew up in the cornfields of Indiana, actually, you know, and, uh, even though we were farmed. 
we had a cornfield for a backyard. And so, yeah, you know, so anything could happen. You know, you could, you could blow that last chance opportunity and blow off that last person just as I am. And, you know, you could, could be cored by a ball or running you know, the run streets of Spain or something, man. <laughs> yeah. <it's, laughs> you know, just hope you can say the sinner's prayer long enough to. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. That you live long enough while you're being dragged behind it that you can finish the sinner's prayer. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I grew up in southern Indiana. So. Gotcha. Yeah. But yeah, I need, I just, I came to this point where I needed Jesus and I needed um, that, uh, the Jesus that wept with me and that knew me and wanted to know me and already knew uh, all about me. And, uh, and I, and I think that was really, um, you know, I don't know if that was my, my golden ticket to heaven moment or not, but I know that it was definitely my, um, salvation moment in my life, you know, as, as it, as it gradually began to unfold. And, uh, so I feel like I've, um, I don't, I don't theologically feel like I've been saved uh, several times. Uh, but I do feel like I've been awakened to it in different ways several times, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. Do you ever have a time when, when compromising your principles of faith uh, seemed like the right thing to do, either for profit or for expediency or whatever it might be? Uh, you know, I'm sure I have. Um, I think that, um, especially in this in this community where I live in Nashville. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of product comes out of here that Christians consume. Um, you know, we have, we have industries here of music and print and publishing and all kinds of things. Um, bloggers, pods, you know, podcasters, I mean, everything is here. And I think that in order to get attention, um, you know, there are certain things you could say and, and, um, and be, more accepted maybe than other things. And, and I, I kind of on the flip side of it, I've been turned down uh, by some publishers because of the nature of what I've said. Um, and not because I was taking a big stand for Jesus and they didn't want me to, it was more because I was right. I was writing honestly about my questions and my reflections. Um, and it didn't all add up necessarily to a bow on the end of it. Mm. Um, where I, you know, I would say I'm still struggling with whatever, you know, and, um, or I'm still pondering whatever. And, um, and that, that didn't, <laughs> that didn't, uh, always sit well with the one size fits all industry that knows, you know, the middle of the road that the most Christians will buy the most books if you sure. say this, this way. You know, so I've, it's been a little bit challenging to be, uh, to be a little honest with my story for one thing, especially in, in, you know, groups that don't, uh, believe that real Christians drink at all or do X, Y, or Z and, uh, find themselves in, in situations where they're out of control. Um, and so, uh, that's been challenging for me. Finally, as we wrap up, David, what would you say to that person that is right on faith's edge about to make that choice to believe or not to believe in God? Well, 
I think that, um, you know, that's a great, that gosh, that's a great question because I think that my belief is that if God is chasing you, he is going to win. And if you sense that God is pursuing you, um, you really, I mean, just, <laughs> you know, just fall on the floor and, 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 you know, just tell him to just take it and, and do whatever he has up, up his sleeve with it. Because, you know, it, it is, it is, um, truly, it is truly a thing where we have to surrender, but it isn't that, um, I mean, it, at least for me, I, I don't think people wake up one day and go, you know, I think I'm going to go out and figure out what it means to be a Christian. I think that, I think that there is just so much in our lives that God uses to pursue us and to draw us and that we begin to awaken to the fact that something this, uh, there's something divine in this unrest. And my, my answer would just be to surrender to it. And, you know, if you, if you regret it, we'll refund your misery, you know? Um, I mean, (laughs) and honestly, because, um, this is, this is the journey, you know, and it's not a, it's not a quick fix. Uh, Anne Lamott writes, um, a beautiful story about her conversion experience that I won't even begin to try to recount, but it's worth reading for people They're talking about honest and, and graphically honest people. I love her and I love her writing. And, um, you know, in a, in a very blatant way, she just told God to just, you know, take it You here, take it. You can have it. I mean, all right, I've run, I've hidden, I've done, you know, all the stuff I can do. Just take it. I don't think we can say anything more than that. The book is our, our authentic selves, uh, reflections on what we believe and what we wish we believed. And man, I, I'm really excited to pick up this, uh, this book, David. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Well, man, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it and really enjoy what you're doing. And um, thanks. It's a, it's a privilege to be on with you. Thank you. God bless you, brother. David's website is davidbhampton.com, and his book, Our Authentic Selves, Reflections on What We Believe and What We Wish We Believed, is available on amazon.com. Again, that's davidbhampton.com, and of course, the book is available on amazon.com. Next up, we welcome back author, speaker, and singer-songwriter, Alanka Deaton. Fresh off her appearance on The Steve Harvey Show, she returns to discuss her new book called Keeping Secrets, where she tells her story of survival as she was kept in sexual slavery as a teenager by her manager. Like I said before, Alanka's a special woman, and her story is incredible. Joe, it is such a thrill to see you and your beautiful wife, and thank you, tremendously thank you for allowing me to come back and speak with you and your listeners. You're a real blessing. You're a real blessing to us. Fresh off uh, your appearance on the Steve Harvey Show. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. You know, he was such a wonderful, nice man to work with. Mm -hmm. And um, he's Christian, by the way, which was wonderful you know, to see. And he allowed me on, on his segment to talk about the Lord, which I was thrilled about, but we had a, such an amazing time with his, him and his whole staff. Here's what was impressive about your, your appearance on, uh, on the Steve Harvey show. You talked about, uh, the issue of sexual slavery. You talked about your own personal story, correct? but you 
pulled no punches, Alonka, when it came to your faith in Jesus Christ. Right. And how he was the source of your strength. And right. he was the reason that you survived. Correct. And, uh, and you were uh, very overt about it. You know, Joe, I thought if I, if I only get one opportunity to be on a secular television program, I want every listener to know that the only thing that I can offer them is the power of Jesus. And whether they kept the segment or not, I was going to say it. And I'm just thrilled that they kept it and, you know, that I could glorify the Lord through that. So how was that received? I mean, I I know how it was received in the moment because there's nothing you can do in the moment. You're saying it. It's coming out. Uh, So was there much of a reaction to how overt you were about your faith? Did uh, did you hear much from him about it? Actually, there was. And some of the things that he responded to, um, they they didn't keep in. I'll tell you about that. So I started out by saying that I'm going to unapologetically tell him that how I was how I was healed and when I said that you could hear a pin drop in the audience because they were they knew something was coming um, after I'd shared all of that Steve actually turned to the audience and he gave a mini sermon to people about his faith about their faith knowing that Christ does heal us and no matter what you've gone through you need to know that you can run to to the Lord with all of it he also continued on saying that he didn't want to receive any bad emails because we are free in the United States to talk about religion and to talk about faith so whether you agreed or not he was going to allow this to happen so he really affirmed it and the audience received it very well and I just think that God's favor was with us because a lot of the people even when we were done who would come up and hug me or or thank me would share that they've either you know thought about Christianity grew up in the church but walked away from their faith or was curious about coming back to the Lord so you never know who's going to sit in the audience you know absolutely Mm -hmm. great appearance oh thank Uh, you great appearance I know that uh you have um uh, you have a very active musical career. I do. Uh, and you're working on projects as we speak. Uh, and you have, uh, uh, you, we, we talked, uh, last time we talked, it was on episode 22. So if you want to hear Alanka's whole story, very transparent, very authentic, uh, not for the faint of heart, frankly. Right. Uh, but if you want to hear Alanka's whole story, go to onfaithsedge.com slash two and you'll hear Alanka's whole story. Uh, including all about her musical career and including all about her the issue of sexual slavery. Uh, setting aside the musical stuff right now, Alanka, as fantastic as it is, right. I want to talk about your new book, Keep, Keeping Secrets. Yes. Oh, Joe, I'm so thrilled that finally um, I have a book. And my story is in the book, but there's so much more. All of the, you know, we don't hold back any punches. All the good and the bad and the ugly and the beautiful is, is in the book. One thing that I do love about what the book does is I really get an opportunity to speak to each reader um, specifically on their emotional trauma that they've gone through in their lives and encourage each woman or man who reads my book that there is freedom and restoration for you specifically with what you've gone through in your story. Um, my story is not unique by any stretch of the imagination. Um, God has given me a platform to call people out of darkness and to call people out of their secrets to not be a secret keeper, but rather to walk in the light and allow the Lord to heal those places in your heart. So it really teaches someone, you know, what my process looked like, but also what they can do. We have extensive resources in the book if you need free counseling, if you don't know where to start, if you have an addiction problem, if you have a pornography problem, where do you go? What do you do? 
with all of that. So we really point you to resources and also show you through transparency what it looks like when you take a step of faith, trust the Lord and start walking through your own journey and process of healing. So uh, not only in Keeping Secrets do you cover your own story of, uh, of sexual slavery, which started at a, at a young age, 15? No, I was 12 years, 12 years old. old. I was kept in it for five years. With your manager, it started with your manager at the time, right? Yes, with my music manager. And yes. then I, w- I was trafficked in that time by him um, and, and just lived a life of darkness. Right. And walked into my adult life with shame and guilt and pretending to be someone that I wasn't. It, it's a dark, know. dark story. And again, you can hear the whole story on, at onfaithsedge.com slash two two. Uh, but you came out of it when a, uh, um, a, a backstage, uh, somebody in the ba- backstage on crew noticed something, something amiss. It was an undercover cop. Yes, okay, yes. okay. That, uh, that rescued me from this person without knowing the true story. Uh, and although I was rescued that day physically, emotionally, I was bound for, you know, 12 years. Um, I kept the, the severity of the secret and all the details of what had happened just a secret. So um, after attempting suicide at 25, I finally had to come to terms with what had happened to me. And it wasn't after I visited a church and heard about the grace of Jesus that I started spilling out my secret and trusting that Jesus can be my savior and my healer as well when I called upon him. That's really where healing started for me. So this is a... This is a beautiful book, Alanka. It's a very hopeful book. Not only do you tell your own story, which right. is very dark um, in the beginning, uh, but you also tell your story how you came out of it through Jesus Christ. Correct. Uh, and how that healing process went. But you don't stop there. You give, you give other people who may be in, in it right now or recovering from it, men or, men or women both, uh, a direction, a path. Right including resources, like you said, yes. on what to do if they're in this. Yes. I, tell, us, tell us a little bit about that process. Joe, I didn't write this book for myself. If I just wanted to hear my own story, I could stay, you know, I could sing it to myself in my shower. That's not why I wrote the book. I wrote the book for the reader. I wrote the book because I want people to have freedom. I want each individual person who is trapped in emotional uh, abuse or has had sexual abuse in their life or is struggling with an addiction or is, has a hard marriage or, you know, I, I had an affair in my first marriage and I talk about that in the book and, and how God had to redeem me from that. So um, the book is to encourage each reader to find freedom for the things that they are entrapped in in their life. So there's a, a chapter in the book called Why I Wrote This Book, and it's very detailed to the reader, and it's very encouraging and very hopeful of the kind of freedom in life that you can live in Jesus if you would put your faith and trust in Him and start walking out the process. You know, when we go through horrible things in our marriages or specifically in life with abuse, or even if it's not abuse, if it's just you know grief, for instance, of losing a parent, um, it doesn't go away overnight. It, it's a process that you have to walk through, and a lot of times we f- we feel or think that that process is going to be more painful than the actual event of what had happened, and that's a lie that Satan wants to keep you in. It's not. It can never be that painful of what had happened. We have to walk through the process into the freedom that the Lord has for us, but it takes time. So the book allows the book allows and also gives each reader permission 
to be patient with themselves, to grieve through what they need to grieve through, uh, to process the pain that they've gone through, to write their stories out, and to uh, give themselves enough space and grace with Jesus to heal from those things. How does it feel, Lanka, to know that uh, everything that you've gone through, uh, through the tragedy and the healing, that at, you're able to help now literally thousands of people go through this and you're, and you're able to bring them from, from tragedy to healing through your own story. How does that feel? It's very humbling, first of all, and it makes my story okay. It makes my story okay because now I get to help other people. And, and truly that is, and I've shared this with you before, it is 2 Corinthians 1.4. God comforts us through our own troubles and struggles so, so that we can therefore comfort other people with, with the same things they're going through. I mean, my story was never meant for me. It was meant for other people. And I will use it to glorify God and to help other people as long as the Lord has breath in my body. You're in a beautiful place right now, aren't you, Alanka? Yes, I am. We are. My husband and I are um, about 10 weeks pregnant, expecting our first child. Congratulations. Thank you. And we Very are. Cool. We're so thrilled. Um, it was a, a journey getting to that place. Um, my husband actually had a vasectomy for 32 years. And we had to have that reversed. And the odds were completely against us. But I just knew that my Jesus would bless, bless us with a child. So after we got that reversed, we only tried for about four months and naturally got pregnant. I know it's a miracle. Wow. Absolute miracle. And uh, we, we, we're so thrilled. And I'm so happy, you know, with what the Lord's giving us. I'm struggling a little bit with morning sickness. But um, I feel like we're, we're coming through the first trimester so. The book is Keeping Secrets, One Woman's Story from Sexual Slavery to Freedom by Alanka Deaton. Alanka, your, uh, uh, your story is important, and thank you for sharing it with, uh, with the world. Thank you, Joe. It's people like you that give me the opportunity to have a platform to be able to share it. So thank you so much. Well, Karen and I love you and Bill. God we bless love you. love you too. God bless you. Alanka's website is alankaministries.com. Again, that's alankaministries.com. And her book, Keeping Secrets, as well as Alanka's music, can be found on Amazon.com. Of course, all of today's links can be found in today's show notes at onfaithsedge.com slash 66. Again, that's onfaithsedge.com slash 66. Well, that'll wrap up today's show. Thank you to David Hampton and Alanka Deaton for being with us today. And of course, thank you for listening. You mean a lot to me, and you mean a lot to the show. Remember, God is real. He loves you, and so do I. God bless. Thank you for listening to On Faith's Edge. You can subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher Internet Radio, or your favorite podcast app on Android, Apple, or Windows devices. To reach out to Joe or leave comments about the show, visit onfaithsedge.com. You're important to us, and we would love to hear from you.